Can you imagine having friends like this? Here are two stories I read on the internet that caused people to hit their breaking point with their toxic friends. One shared, my breaking point came when my mom passed away. My friend never responded to my text saying my mom had passed. Two days later, this friend asked if I wanted to grab dinner and shop at the mall. I needed a distraction, so I agreed to meet up. My mistake. My friend had fought with her boyfriend and spent the entire meal talking about her breakup. She didn't express sympathy or ask how I was. No acknowledgement of my loss. And if that wasn't enough, she didn't attend my mom's funeral despite saying she would be there. I never responded to her text again. It's been 12 years, and I haven't regretted ghosting her. The second true story someone shared is this. My friend and I had a great relationship, but when my life changed and hers didn't, she became bitter. Whenever I told her good news, she would be sad for herself instead of happy for me. I had a miscarriage. Even though we weren't trying for a baby, it was very emotional. When I told her about the miscarriage, after I could talk about it without crying, she said, thank God you weren't pregnant. I would have cried if you were. So she would have been upset if I was pregnant because she wasn't. That's when I decided I would not continue our toxic relationship. As someone is defined, a toxic relationship is one that has unhealthy dynamics and causes you distress or harm because you're unsupported, manipulated, or disrespected. While we all have our moments and seasons of selfishness, a truly toxic person will take and take and take and give you nothing in return. Many people talk about toxic relationships in the context of romance, but the reality is any relationship can be toxic, including relationships with coworkers, in-laws, parents, siblings, and friends. In life, we may have many unhealthy relationships, and some indeed become toxic. These relationships are a bad influence on us and lead us away from Christ. What are the types of people we should be perhaps avoiding or distancing from? Who are friends we should watch out for because their actions negatively affect us? Let's identify some of these individuals as we continue our sermon series, Checkmate, studying the life of King Solomon. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. And as you're turning to this passage, by way of a background reminder, remember Solomon has been crowned the next king of Israel by his father, King David, after almost losing the crown to his older brother, Adonijah, who had conspired with others to try to gain the crown. And we talked about this last week. We pick up the story in verses 1 to 4 of 1 Kings chapter 2. Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and whatever or wherever you turn, that the Lord may fulfill his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. 
As David is about to draw his last breath on earth, he reminded his son Solomon that he should walk in the ways of God and to keep his commandments so that Solomon would be successful and an effective king with a legacy that would continue for generations to come. But then, to a bit of surprise, David warned Solomon about some people he should watch out for in verses 5 to 9, specifically Joab, the commander of his army, who had murdered two previous commanders, Abner and Amasa, and Shimei, a relative of King Saul, who had cursed David while he was fleeing from his son Absalom. Both men deserved to die in accordance with the Mosaic law and could also pose a potential threat to Solomon's rule based on their past actions. In verse 9, we read that David tells Solomon to use wisdom to watch out for them. And if they did anything else that broke the law and deserved severe punishment, then David advised Solomon that they be put to death. Look now at verses 10 to 12. So David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. The period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. The Bible tells us David died at the age of 70, having ruled well for 40 years. He passed on a kingdom that was united and peaceful. And it was noted that Solomon's kingdom was firmly established, meaning he didn't have to worry much with usurpers or fellow rivals. This is important to note because when we see Solomon's actions in the next few verses, he's doing so not to win power or to have more power, but to ensure that what was firmly established would be maintained. And this is the point of identifying toxic people and unhealthy relationships in our lives. We do so not to remove them or distance them because they're potential rivals or competitors, but because by having them around us, their bad attitudes, their toxic personalities, their unhealthy ways of dealing with things will cause us to move away from the godliness we are to live out or to move away from our relationship that we have with Jesus. Now, let's take a look at the types of toxic people Solomon wisely gets rid of in a justified way, as a guide and warning for us to be aware and perhaps stay away from similar people. I read now verses 13 to 15. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. So she said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. Moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, say it. Then he said, you know that the kingdom was mine. And all Israel had set their expectations on me that I should reign. However, the kingdom has been turned over and has become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. Now, let me just stop here and say that this guy, Adonijah, is the epitome of entitlement and probably a bit delusional with no sense of reality. Here, he is the one who who tries to outmaneuver his brother, the God-appointed Solomon, to be king himself. But he himself was outplayed and outwitted, and Solomon was crowned king. In fact, he begged Solomon to spare his life, which Solomon did. Now he's telling the mom of the present king that he should have been king. It was his right to be king, and all Israel wanted him to be king. And then that audacious statement that because God wanted it to be so, Solomon, his brother, 
took what was his and became king instead of him. It's like losing an election and then telling the winner's mom that you should have won because you are a winner and you were destined to win. Everyone wanted you to win, but people didn't vote for you because the other guy was more popular. It's almost laughable. It's ridiculous. But then again, a lot of people are like Adonijah. They are so entitled that they believe that they are too educated, too powerful, too talented, too spiritual. They have the right last name not to follow the rules, to start from the bottom and work themselves up and have the rights and exemptions not afforded to other people. Look what Adonijah asked from Bathsheba, the queen mother, verses 16 to 18. Now I ask one petition of you, do not deny me. And she said to him, say it. Then he said, please speak to King Solomon, for he will not refuse you, that he may give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as wife. So Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. Adonijah wanted the very beautiful Abishag, the Shunammite, as his wife. If you remember from last week, Abishag was chosen to care for King David in his old age. Adonijah didn't ask this because Abishag was beautiful, but because of her position in the royal household, that somehow by marrying her, it was a strategic move on his part to claim the throne, or at the very least, to hold on to some royal power. In verses 19 to 21, we're told that Bathsheba does this favor for Adonijah, Now, I don't think Bathsheba was that naive, but rather she brought this request to Solomon to expose Adonijah and warn Solomon that his brother was still fighting for power even if he had lost and he was extended much grace. Verses 22 to 25. Then King Solomon answered and said to his mother, Now, why do you ask Abishag the Shudamite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also. For he is my older brother, for him, and for Abiathar the priest, and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, May God do so to me, and more also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David my father, and who has established a throne for me as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down, and he died. Solomon wisely figured out that this request from Adonijah for Abishag as his wife through Bathsheba was an attempt by him to claim the throne for himself, using whom he thought was the unsuspecting Bathsheba. Because if there was nothing wrong with this request, why didn't Adonijah simply go directly to his brother Solomon with this request. We see from what he tells Bathsheba that his entitled thinking really showed he believed he was the rightful king. Through this request, therefore, Adonijah was guilty of treason and should be put to death. So Solomon sent Benaiah to go execute Adonijah. From Adonijah's actions, we learn a lesson Number one, watch out for people who feel entitled. Watch out for people who feel entitled. It's not only this generation that feels entitled. The very human nature, the sinful human nature that started with Adam 
has percolated through the centuries. Back then, there were people who also felt very entitled. Now, we don't have to kill these people as Solomon did, but we should certainly watch out for and be aware of these types of people, perhaps even distancing ourselves from them lest their entitled attitudes rub off on us. Entitled people believe the world owes them something. They're often people who always have to be right. For them, life and arguments are a zero-sum game where there is someone who is absolutely right and there's someone who is totally wrong and the entitled one thinks he is always right. Entitled people do not allow for there to be two different perspectives, nor will it be okay for them to have a compromise solution. They find it very hard to say sorry and often won't forgive because they're never wrong, of course. And if others do them wrong, it is unforgivable. Entitled people often can't find the love and grace to seek for true restoration and reconciliation. Now, as a caveat, let me make it clear that I'm not talking about people who are truly in the right or who are genuinely wronged or who are trying to right the wrong or lovingly wanting to bring to light the truth. These people are justified in their thinking. The entitled people I'm talking about, just like Adonijah, are those who don't deserve the rights and privileges they believe they deserve. They do not live in reality and are self-centered. Entitled people can even hide behind their spirituality and spiritual pride. These are toxic people, and you, my friends, should distance from them and certainly do not put them in positions of leadership. Because the insecurities that drive that entitlement is a recipe for disaster if they are in leadership. Entitled people are not Christ-like. Philippians chapter 2 reminds us that as the Son of God, God Himself, Jesus Christ, came to earth and took on incarnate or bodily form. And the Bible tells us He did not consider equality with God something to be used to His advantage. Of all people who alone could be entitled and worthy of special privileges, it was Jesus, God Himself. But He exemplified humility and willingly gave up many of His rights in order to die in our place for the very people He loved, you and me. My friends, as Christians, followers of Christ, Jesus should be our example, not entitled people. Now look at verses 26. To 27. And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your own fields, for you are deserving of death. But I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted. So Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest of the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. The Bible tells us for his part in joining Adonijah's rebellion, the priest Abiathar was not put to death because he did serve as a priest of the holy God and had been partially loyal to King David, especially during Absalom's rebellion. But Solomon removed Abiathar from his priestly office, which meant that the priestly tribe of Eli ended with him as prophesied by God. Abiathar was exiled from the capital city of Jerusalem and allowed to return back to his home tribe and to his family. By removing Abiathar 
from a position of spiritual influence, Solomon wisely removed someone who hid behind his spiritual title and position as he was playing politics because he knew that his influence was waning with the rise of Zadok the priest. That's why he threw his support behind Adonijah, hoping to still be relevant and to keep his title and position if Adonijah were somehow to succeed to be king. Abiathar's removal from office is a good lesson to distance ourselves from people like this, which leads us to our second warning, number two. Watch out for people who value titles. Watch out for people who value titles and positions. As the great Renaissance thinker Niccolo Machiavello once said, it is not titles that honor men, but men that honor titles. Why are these people toxic? Because these are people who often do not take up the responsibility of doing what is right, because they are so worried about protecting their position and keeping their title. What do I mean by this? You see, there are many people who pride themselves in their position and titles, but they don't do much. They want the power, prestige, and influence that comes with their titles, but they don't want to put in the hard work that comes with their responsibilities. These are the types of people who only say good things to their higher-ups and compliment their boss profusely because they want to protect their positions. They don't speak up for what is right and true when they should. They carry titles but don't do the work. I'm sure you know many people like this. They sip-sip or suck up to their bosses because they don't want to jeopardize their chances of getting a more prestigious title or simply want to keep the position that they have. You can identify these types of people because they stress their credentials all the time and they focus on their titles. They get upset when you accidentally forget to style them by their earned or honorary titles. They are intrinsically insecure because for them, their man-given title is their identity. Now listen carefully. I'm not advocating for us to be disrespectful and not address someone who has rightfully earned their distinctions. But be careful about those who value titles and positions or even societal positions highly because they will often not speak the truth nor do what is right because they don't want to risk not being liked. They want to be the good guy, the whole lang, and leave the dirty works to others, even if the tough thing is what they're supposed to do. I remember once meeting an ordained minister who got offended because some people in his church the church he grew up in, didn't address him by reverend, but simply addressed him warmly and personally as brother. I couldn't believe it. As someone who really isn't into titles, I wouldn't be bothered if you called me Steve or Pastor Stephen, not reverend or doctor or both. I'm just glad that you acknowledge me. I once joked with my wife, Cindy, that you can call me the most reverend, holy Stephen, asking her to respect me to which he replied, then you can call me the supreme commander of the universe. <laughs> you know, titles are funny. It may give you an ego boost, but a lot of it is just to cover up the reality of who you are. You know, take these titles. Maybe you've heard some of them. A hair therapist is just a barber. A sanitary engineer is a janitor or a custodian. A field nourishment consultant is a waiter. A herder of canines is a dog walker. The director of first impressions is a receptionist. 
A domestic engineer is a housewife or a house husband. A tiny human entertainer is simply a stay-at-home man. A flavor mixologist is a chef. I like this one. A transparent wall technician is a window cleaner. The chief beverage officer is the bartender. A social media consultant is someone who has actually no skills but surfs the internet all day. A COO can be a child of owner or the chief of other stuff no other C-suite executive wants to do. Many are falling into the title game, and companies know it and use it, in fact, to attract new hires. As expert Daisy Shi writes, the new trend that I've been seeing in the job market these days is all these fancy titles companies are using to attract talent, and guess what? Most of us are buying into it. Raise your hand if you've ever been enticed by a job that included senior, manager, or head of, or all of the above. I know I have, she writes. Having these words in job titles is not something new in the job market. However, what is new is attaching these fancy titles to junior roles to attract talent. My advice, don't fall for it. Read the job description, consider all the learning opportunities, and ask as many questions around the role and future growth opportunities as possible before making your decision. Marissa Peretz writes in a Forbes article, a true leader does not need a job title. Generally, people who care about titles feel like they cannot have influence without it. If someone needs a title for people to take them seriously, they are not a true leader. A sign of a true leader is someone who can influence without a title and can create relationships and trust with others through understanding business needs and how to mutually support one another to achieve goals. One example of this is whether their colleagues listen to them when they have an idea or respect their suggestions. More often than not, I find that the people who do not care about job titles are the high performers. A title is only as powerful and meaningful as the one who bears it, says Nathan Masterson, himself a CEO. Good leaders carry their companies regardless of whether or not their title precisely describes their contributions. My friends, even the secular world understands this. It shouldn't matter what title you have. If the phone is ringing, you answer it. That is how it is in our church office as we intentionally do not have or need a receptionist. I know a few of you have been surprised to hear my voice pick up the telephone when you call the trunk line because my wife has trained me up that way. Do you think my family cares if I'm the senior pastor of this church or have lots of titles before my name or letters after my name? Of course not. If they need toilet paper in the bathroom, they just yell, Dad, I need toilet paper. And the Reverend Dr. Stephen Tan, BSE, BS Matt, THM, Summa Cum Laude, Demon, whatever, walk over to the closet and get a roll of toilet paper, and take a deep breath, and open the door of that stinky bathroom, and hand my kid or my wife a roll of toilet paper. Families put you in your place. People who focus on titles and positions usually get to a place where they feel entitled to something, and those are toxic people you don't want around you. You want to surround yourself with people who will speak the truth in love, regardless of titles. And you want to surround yourselves with people who will do the right thing and do what needs to be done, not worrying about the impact to their positions. Remember what Proverbs chapter 27, verses 6 and 9 reminds us. Proverbs 27, verse 6. 
Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And then verse 9, ointment and perfume delight the heart, and the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. You know, it's interesting, but the title used most often in the New Testament to describe Jesus and the primary title Jesus uses when referring to himself is the title Son of Man. Of all the titles, the second person of the divine triune Godhead could use, the Son of God, God Himself, the Messiah, the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, to describe Himself, He most often uses the title Son of Man. A title of humility, focusing on His perfect humanity even while He is fully divine. The one who knew all of heaven's glory for all eternity, past, present, and future, became the Son of Man and was born in a manger to take on the limitations of a human body, to be despised and rejected, and then to suffer the worst possible way to die in order to save us. Of all the people who could use a glorious title, it would be Jesus. And yet he refers himself as the Son of Man. If you're caught up, my friends, in the title position game, think about Jesus and follow His example. As Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 tells us, Philippians 2, 7, Jesus made Himself nothing, but taking the very nature or form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Follow Jesus. Follow Christ. And distance yourself from those who value titles and positions in this world. Verses 28 to 30. The news came to Joab, for Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar and King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord. There he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go, strike him down. So Benaiah went to the tabernacle of the Lord and said to him, Thus says the king, Come out. And he said, No, but I will die here. And Benaiah brought back word to the king, saying, Thus says Joab, and thus he answered me. Joab, the commander of the army, and King David's nephew through his sister, had sided with Adonijah in his rebellion and had tried to seek refuge in the tabernacle. He thought that by taking hold of the horns of the brazen altar, his life would be spared as Adonijah's had been initially, when he had also grabbed onto the horns of the altar in the previous chapter. But the Levitical laws only allowed for mercy and sanctuary for those who accidentally killed someone, not for one who willfully murdered others. You see, Joab had murdered two of his potential rivals, Abner and Amasa, as we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 3 and chapter 20. And so Benaiah was sent to execute Joab, but Joab would not leave the tabernacle of the Lord and said he should die there, verse 31. Then the king said to him, do as he has said and strike him down and bury him that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab shed. With the blessings of Solomon, Benaiah entered the tabernacle and struck down Joab. 
Solomon wisely understood that, that by letting Joab live, there was some culpability on the house of David as expressed in verses 32 to 35. So by dealing with Joab's sin, God could now bless Solomon for the sin and guilt that was Joab's is only on his family now, and the blood of the innocent was avenged. What made Joab so toxic to David that he had to warn his son Solomon about him? If you read the Bible, was not Joab a fearless and faithful commander of David's army? In fact, the Bible portrays him as doing many things that were right and on many occasions gave David good advice and good counsel. He was not afraid to speak up even when David was wrong, like when he told David that taking a census would be a sin. And you can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 24. So why would David now tell Solomon to get rid of him, formerly a very trusted advisor? It was because Joab could no longer be trusted. When Joab killed Abner, he did so in cold blood. Specifically, when David commanded Joab to let Abner live, Joab disregarded David's command. Then Joab killed Amasa. He did so to get rid of a rival, but he did so treacherously while greeting him with a kiss. And of course, Joab sided with Adonijah and conspired against God's and David's chosen Solomon. Regardless of his many abilities, Joab could not be trusted. He had character issues and was therefore toxic. And this is the third group of people you and I should watch out for. Number three, watch out for people who cannot be trusted. Watch out for people who cannot be trusted. My friends, once broken, trust is very hard to gain back. As they say, if a person cheats on his wife with you, don't think that he will not cheat on you with someone else. At its core, trust is a character issue. So you and I should not have too many people who have shown themselves to be people who cannot be trusted. If so, I guarantee that you will be burned and hurt by them. You should trust people who will speak the truth to you in love and tell you things even if you don't want to hear it. Because if they dare speak the truth in love, then they can be trusted. Of course, in life, we do need to trust others in order to get things done. If you are by nature untrusting, then you will end up doing everything yourselves. But my point is this. Don't keep trusting people who have shown themselves untrustworthy. Distance yourself from them. David trusted Joab for many years until Joab showed himself untrustworthy, at which point David told Solomon to watch out for him. What is that old saying? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So how do we identify people who cannot be trusted? Let me suggest six ways, as I've seen and experienced. First, they're not honest. They're not honest. They spin stories. They tell half-truths. The details are always changing to fit their narrative. How can you trust someone who's not honest or always changing the story to fit their narrative? If someone keeps lying, you can't trust them. Second, they do not acknowledge their wrongs or failures. If they're not going to own up or be responsible for doing anything wrong, how can you trust them to do what is right in the future? 
if they acknowledge mistakes, because we all make them, then it shows that they're taking personal responsibilities without excuses. Third, you can't trust people whom you can't count on or depend on them to do what they say they would do. People who say something but don't do it is untrustworthy. If you notice that a person always fails to deliver or forgets or simply doesn't do, then it's not a scheduling issue. They're simply untrustworthy. Fourth, a breach in confidentiality or they don't hold confidence. If they swear not to tell anyone what you told them, but they still do, and they tell the other person, you promise not to tell, then how can you trust people like that? Fifth, they show a lack of empathy, sympathy, or joy when you succeed. If they don't emote with you in your highs and lows, then they really don't care about you, and perhaps they are jealous of you. The success you have is something they want themselves. And if someone is jealous of you, be warned, you can't trust them. Finally, for me, someone is not trustworthy if they have two sets of rules, double standards, think that the rules don't apply to them or, and only to others. It's hard to trust someone with double standards and shifting rules. And that's why for us as parents, the most important thing we desire or should desire for our children is to mold the character of our child. I tell my kids often, don't do anything that will break our trust of you because trust is hard to gain back. Look at verses 36 to 38. Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and do not go out from there anywhere. For it shall be on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain you will surely die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, the saying is good. As my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shimei dwelt in Jerusalem many days. The Bible tells us because of Shimei's past actions, and you can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 16, Solomon showed grace and basically put him under house arrest and let this man from the house of Saul live. But a condition was put on him. He was not to cross the brook Kidron and return to his tribal land of Benjamin, where he could incite something against this ruler from the house of David. Verse 39 to 41. Now it happened at the end of three years that two slaves of Shimei ran away to Achish, the son of Maaka, king of Gath. And they told Shimei, saying, Look, your slaves are in Gath. So Shimei arose, saddled his donkey, and went to Achish at Gath to seek his slaves. And Shimei went and brought his slaves from Gath. And Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had come back. Well, after three years of living in Jerusalem and obeying the conditions he himself had agreed to, a circumstance arose and caused him not to obey, and he broke his promise. Look what happened, verse 42 to 46. Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you go out and travel anywhere, you shall surely die? And you said to me, The word I've heard is good. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? The king said moreover to Shimei, You know, as your heart acknowledges all the wickedness that you did to my father David, Therefore, the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. 
But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the Lord, excuse me, so the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Because he did not obey, he did not obey Solomon's instructions, broke his own agreement, broke the promise he had made in the name of the Lord, he was justly executed. Now, some may see this as being harsh, but it's as if someone today broke his bail conditions or broke his parole conditions, and now he has to suffer what he deserved all along because bail and parole are acts of grace. Solomon showed grace to allow Shimei to live in Jerusalem with set conditions. But at the end, the root issue is that Shimei simply lacked self-control. He could not keep from crossing the river Kidron, whether in his mind the reason was justified or not. This is a person who lacked self-control. And people who lack self-control are not good to have around. It's not healthy to have people who lack self-control all around you because self-control is very similar to obedience, but a little bit more. As someone notes, being obedient is following directions or commands or exhibiting good behaviors when someone is present, whereas having self-discipline is making good choices without the presence or reminders from another person. Note that Shimai was not in prison under guard. He could roam freely in Jerusalem and had the choice to cross or not the Brook Kidron. No one was stopping him. But guess what? When he decided to cross the Brook Kidron, someone saw him and reported it to Solomon. And so that lack of self-control got him killed. But you know, that's often how we act. We will do things rightly if we know that people are watching us. But if no one's watching us, why should I prevent myself from enjoying life? And so that lack of self-control will often cause a downfall. Often we're only sorry that we're caught. We wondered how that person of all times and of all places was at that place to see me do wrong. But that's how it is. But if you exhibited self-control, then you wouldn't have gotten to those problems in the first place. Whether it is the law of God or of the government, or the rules as set forth by parents in the house in which you live, or whether someone is watching or not, one who lacks self-control and doesn't obey is a bad influence because they're playing a catch-me-if-you-can sort of game. And if you play this game with them, you also may be caught up in it. And this is our fourth type of people we may need to distance ourselves from. Number four, watch out for people who lack self-control. Watch out for people who lack self-control. From the very beginning of man's existence, the temptation of Satan was, oh, it's okay, you can break a little of the rules. Nothing is really going to happen to you. You won't surely die. Adam and Eve, you just taste this forbidden fruit. God's not going to do what he said. And sadly, they both lacked the self-control they needed to avoid the temptation, and they didn't obey what God had so clearly said. And thus, sin came into the world. My friends, you can control your life with the Holy Spirit's help. In fact, it is one of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. A Spirit-filled person is one who is self-controlled. That's why you surround yourself with people who can control their own lives. 
but distance yourself from people who cannot because they are not spirit-filled. People who are not self-controlled will surely influence you because it's like when I want a snack late night and I can't control my craving. Do I keep that craving to myself? Of course not. I invite the entire family, my wife and my kids, to self-indulge with me. And guess what? Everyone the next morning feels regret and guilt. That is how it is. Be with people who exhibit self-control and obedience. That way, you will do what is God-honoring. Putting it all together, how do we detox from toxic people? Number one, watch out for people who feel entitled. Number two, watch out for people who value titles. Number three, watch out for people who cannot be trusted. And finally, watch out for people who lack self-control. As we examine who we surround ourselves with, watch out for and perhaps distance ourselves from toxic people that draw us away from godliness. But there is one whom we should draw nearer to. His name is Jesus. He perfectly exemplified unentitlement. He disregarded his titles and positions to take on bodily form to die for us. He has never lied to us and can be fully trusted, and he lived out his earthly life in perfect self-control as our example. Instead of pushing him away or ignoring him, we should be inviting him into our hearts to have an intimate relationship with the one who indeed is our true friend, one whom we can learn from to emulate so that we can not only succeed in this life, but find purpose, joy, satisfaction, and eternal life. Thank you.